0: Amen, <clears throat> love you guys, It's going to be fun, um, I am, uh, I'm thankful you're here, I'm glad you guys are here, this series um, on uh, the shape of love has been really our attempt at just that, um, we're really trying to make more sense out of this idea of love. Right? We're trying to uh, look at um, this concept, this uh, idea, this deep, deep thing that our God has given us and defined for us and, and showed us and told us to go and do likewise. Uh, and so what we've really tried to do is figure out what that, that shape really looks like, a correct shape. And we've talked throughout this series that our past experiences and our hurt uh, and even maybe just our lack of understanding has misshapen really what love is um, and, and hijacked it in a lot of ways. and. Uh, allowed us to get confused in that. And so what we're doing is we're walking through it. Uh, We would love for you guys to text questions. So um, next week, actually, is going to be the sermon where I try to just interact based on where you guys want to take us from this series. So for the last, this is now the fourth week, um, we've really wanted your input to say, man, help shape where you want us to be more specific. Maybe there's whole topics that we haven't covered. I know. I know there's whole topics we haven't covered. You say, man, I want you to dive into this aspect. And um, we've already gotten a whole lot of text, so we won't be able to get to everything. But I want to start seeing what the themes are that you guys want. So that's what next week is. So the phone number will be on all these screens. So at any point when I'm saying something and you're like, man, what does that mean? Or could you elaborate more? That's what next week's sermon is going to be all about. So give us that feedback. Uh, So the first week we talked about how love is not simply a feeling. Right? We talked about it. it's not simply a feeling, and this is why we got to pick on The Bachelor a lot, because I hate The Bachelor, although I heard last week was the most dramatic Bachelor ever. Right? Oh, my gosh. Right? Really epic. Like, he mumbles McGee, like, didn't know. He's all angsty, and he, like, turned down a bunch of girls. I don't know what happened, but my wife said it was super dramatic. Um, and, uh... And so, yeah. So this idea, like we're looking for this elusive, you know, magical unicorn of love, and it's this feelings-based lie that we're sold all throughout our media. But instead, we talked about that um, that it's it's not a feelings-based thing. There's an action. There should be action attached to our love. Um, that a, a better, more proper definition uh, is that, and that we don't build it on this foundation of, of feelings. And if we are trying to identify, if we're trying to identify if someone loves us, um, we should be able to look at their actions. And those validate or invalidate that love, or they just reveal maybe the maturity level at which their love is. So maybe they say they love you, and then when you look at their actions, their actions don't really seem to match that. So it starts to define properly what their love is, as opposed to allowing that person to mistakenly start to shape your view of what love is, Um, and it doesn't mean, uh, and, and I would also say too that whenever we are trying to identify if we love someone else or something else and we're trying to look, man, do I love this person? Do I love this thing? Do I love this, this ministry or opportunity? And we're trying, to, we're trying to gauge that. In all those different contexts, we should be able to look at our actions and say, okay, is this something that there's action behind? Is this just talk and emotion or, or is there any action? And if there isn't action, that should reveal to us and convict us that maybe we're not really loving it the way we should or could or are called to, depending on what that is. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean that we say, oh, well, there's not really action, so I guess I'm not really in love. I guess I didn't really catch the right magical buzz, and I guess that's what that means. So I'm going to bounce out of that, and I'm going to blame the object for not being worthy of my love and saying, well, yeah, I guess, I guess she wasn't the one or he wasn't the one or this wasn't the one or this church wasn't the one or this you know calling in my life wasn't the one. I guess I really, and so we bounce out of that, and we blame the object, which would be a huge miss if instead we realize that maybe it's a maturity, a maturity part on, on our hearts if we are truly called to step into that. So, um, and if not corrected, then we become someone who bounces around from relationship to relationship or community to community, and as soon as it kind of becomes inconvenient, and no, then we just bounce to another person or community looking for something that seems so elusive, which led into the second week. Where we talked about love is not something that you fall in and out of, but instead love is steadfast. And love should have a steadfastness to it. And we looked at that in the Old Testament. We looked at how God's love for us is this steadfast, beautiful thing that in our friendships, in our community, it's not giving up on those things. In a romantic relationship, it's it's standing in front of the other person in their prime and telling them they love them, but also loving that future version of them. If you truly have that depth of love, and if you truly made that depth of of marriage covenant to step into it. And so to be able to love my wife now, sure, she's 32 and she's hot and loves Jesus and all of those things, but also being able to love the 72-year-old version of my wife who has saggy boobs and gray hair and smells bad and all of those things. And yet that is romance and love. To be able to, y'all are caught on the fact I said saggy boobs, so we're going to have to process that and move past it. But the reality is, the reality is love, right, love should be this steadfast thing. And so the version in that context of of a covenant relationship is not, oh, I love this version. It's, I love all of these versions, and I'm committed and pursuing and walking with and get excited about that version. And for her, to me, praise God for that, because I have long passed my prime. Every day, I get closer and closer to being hideous and morbidly obese, every day. And so... Her love that is steadfast, uh, there's a depth to that. And then last week, we talked about how love is a tool. And love is a tool that God has designed to form us into the image of Christ and for us to use to form others into the image of Christ, because that's our goal, and that's God's will for our life. And in that tool, there's these two really important sides of that. There's two, two ends to that tool that have to stay together, and that's the idea of truth and Grace. And so often, we want to just love someone with grace and no truth, and we talked about how that's just, that's just tolerance, right? That's not actually real love. It's just, oh, man, we just have grace for somebody, but there's no truth attached to that. There's no depth to that. That's just tolerance. Or we love someone with just truth, just truth, and no grace attached to it, and then that's just hateful. Like, that's not what love is either. And we looked at John 8, the story of the woman in the well. I'm sorry, the woman who's caught in adultery. Um, and she gets brought before Jesus. And she is caught in the act of adultery. And Jesus Christ, the God incarnate, looks among all of her accusers who are ready to stone her to death. Um, and he looks at them and he, and he calls them out and he tells them, if you are without sin, you can cast the first stone. And they leave and he, he protects and he shows this grace for her. And then he, he gets down in the dirt with this woman who is covered in shame and covered in guilt. I mean, she's guilty. And then he says, go and sin no more. So he doesn't say, hey, no one should judge you. Don't ever judge people. He says, no, your sin is sin. And you need to never sin. You need to sin no more. You need to run from that. You need to flee. You need to hate sin the way I hate it. But we see this beautiful picture in John 8 of truth and grace. So tonight. So tonight is going to be, uh, I think, um, I'm not just saying this because you're stuck in this room now and I'm supposed to say these kind of things. I really think it's going to be the most important uh, thing we can look at when we talk about biblical love. Uh, I don't think we can actually love well, or correctly, I should say, uh, truly love without this understanding that we're going to talk about tonight. I think our understanding of this is key for how we love someone else, uh, how we love someone who's undeserving of our love or anyone. Um, and, uh, and that truth, the foundational truth, is the picture of sacrifice. That's what we're going to see in the shape of love tonight, is there should be this picture of sacrifice. Uh, we should understand that, and that should be uh, core to how we love. And the wrong way, as opposed to sacrifice, would be the, the swing to, well, love is about what I want, and selfish, and consumeristic. Um, but that's not how we are called to do it. Uh, in the Old Testament... Let me unpack a little bit of what sacrifice looked like. Uh, in the Old Testament, we see the people of God, the Israelites, um, are given this sacrificial system. Uh, they are given a system in which they are allowed to be able to be reconciled with a holy and perfect God by sacrificing animals and, and drink offerings and all of these things. And each sacrifice has a purpose. And there's entire books in the Old Testament that kind of lay out why you do it and how you do it and, and this the sacrificial system uh, one of the most important, the most important sacrifice uh, was this sacrifice for atonement and the forgiving of our sins. And so they would take a lamb, and it would be a spotless lamb. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be the lamb that was like the run of the litter, and it's going to die soon anyway, or something like that. It was, no, a spotless, pure lamb. And they would take it to the priests, and that lamb, perfect lamb, would be killed. Killed, and it would be messy, and its blood would be everywhere, and its blood would be poured out. And it was this really gory thing that happened in the Old Testament that God commanded to say, you're going to do this picture of sacrifice for the forgiveness of the sins you're in. But also as a picture of the faith of the one ultimate sacrifice that is to come. And, uh, and so why is that, that sacrifice, right? Animals being killed, I think, is often what we think of when we uh, talk about biblical sacrifice, specifically in the Old Testament. Why is that key to our love? And, uh, and he, here's, what, here's where we're going with this tonight. One big concept, and then we're just going to ask three questions um, and just jump back into worship. Why is sacrifice key to our worship? It is key to our worship. It's key to our understanding of love because we are sinners. It's key. We cannot really love without sacrifice because we have to understand that we are sinners. We are far from God. We are not worthy of of being in a relationship with the God of the universe. And also, secondarily, it is key to our understanding because God is holy and God is perfect and God is just and righteous and the creator of all things who sustains all things is worthy of perfection and holiness. And and our words don't do it justice. We should be in awe It should be an awesome thing to think and dwell and look at who God is and how perfect he is. And so because we are sinners and because God is holy, the only way we could be reconciled with that God, being where we are and came from and exist, is through sacrifice. And obviously we're referencing the ultimate sacrifice in the New Testament. Look at 1 Peter 19 and 20. We're going to be in a lot of scripture tonight, all over the place. And so we're going to throw it up there on the screen. Uh, if you want to write down the references, uh, I, I'll try not to move too fast past it. Um, but, uh, but we'll throw it up on the screen there, and hopefully that'll, that'll be a blessing to you. First Peter 19 and 20 says this, But with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times to you. Um, Our God manifested himself in the person of Jesus Christ. God put on flesh, incarnate is the fancy word we use for it, and walked among us and lived this perfect holy life without blemish. And Jesus then was taken to the cross and whipped almost to death, beaten almost to death, And then carried a cross and was nailed to a cross and hung on a cross and suffered and died. And the weight of the sin, our sin in this room, the weight of the sin of the world, was put on Christ, on the cross, at his crucifixion. And then three days later, he rises again. And 40 days after that, ascends to heaven and now sits at the right hand of God. And that news That good news that we call the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this historic moment that happened in our timeline of history, this thing that happened that ties all of history together that was always God's plan, that reconciles those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. That gospel of Jesus' death and blood as the perfect lamb being poured out for all those who say, yes, that's my God. I surrender to that God. My faith is in that God. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the ultimate sacrifice that was given for us. And the significance of that has to move from a Sunday school story that we heard or something we hear at Easter time to something that has impacted and changed our lives in every facet. And all the areas that that story doesn't change our lives are areas that have yet to be matured towards Christ. 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25 says, He himself... Bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin to, and live to righteousness. We die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Our God put the weight of our sin on Christ, and as he hung on that tree, Second Corinthians five twenty one for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Wow, he took Jesus Christ who knew no sin and took all of our sin and made Jesus sin so that we might, what? Have the righteousness of God. We, those who are in Christ, I should say, have the righteousness of God because of the sacrifice of God. God shows his love for us while we were yet sinners. God shows his love for us, Romans 5.8 says, while we were yet sinners. Not when we got cleaned up, not when we showed up to church, not when we stopped doing bad things. God showed his love, the perfect shape of love, while we were yet sinners. He sent Christ to die for us. This is the perfect picture and shape of love, the good news of Jesus Christ. And here's what I get hung up on. Why does that gospel that we normally just leave for the end of the sermon or the benediction or, you know, we talk about it at Easter. Why does that gospel, why does that not move us to tears with gratitude more? Why can we talk about the gospel? And, and some of our hearts should flutter with that. But why do we not more? Why when we talk about what happened on the cross, are we not just moved to tears and action and a radical obedience? Why has that become white noise in our life? Um, And I I think there's a couple of reasons. I think one, because we don't really think we're that big of sinners. I think somewhere in our heart, intellectually, you've heard enough sermons to think, okay, yeah, I'm a a sinner. But we don't really believe that we're that dead and separated from Christ. Or, and maybe and or, we don't really believe God is that holy. Right? God is good and holy and we're going to worship him. But we don't really see the chasm as that dramatic and that amazing and that unpenetrable to us. There is a doctrine that has led me to worship more than just about anything else, and it's the doctrine of total depravity. And it's, the more I study it, the more I read the Bible, it it comes out more and more, and it's this idea, it's this doctrine that I am depraved and apart from God's grace, I can do nothing. I'm not even good enough I'm not even good enough to work my way to choosing God, that God, really, that I am dead. I'm not the guy on the life raft. I am dead, and God needs to get to the bottom of the ocean and pull up my dead carcass to breathe life into it. Therefore, all of my relationship and worship and grace and good and any gift I have or anything good in me comes from God. And so this doctrine and this idea of total depravity, uh, this truth we see, should stir my heart, and I should see that chasm between us as greater and greater, I think, um, I think there's a question we ask, and it's a really good question. Uh, I hope that you have asked it. I hope that you've wrestled with it. I think there's good answers to it. Um, it is the question of, if God really loves us, and God is holy, uh, and he's good, and he's in control, why would a God who is in control allow bad things, tragic things to happen to good people? Right? Why would a good God and a powerful God let bad things happen to good people? It is a great question. Um, and I'm not afraid of answering that question. If you want to text it in, we'll talk about it next week. But I'm not going to answer that in this sermon. Um, but you should wrestle with it. But here's a question I want to throw out that I don't think we ask near as much. And I, th- I think we probably should. And that is, why, why does a perfect and holy God who is perfect and holy and righteous, why in the world would he sacrifice his son for me, who is sinful and broken? Why would God do that? Why would God, why would God show me grace? I don't deserve grace. Inherent within the idea of grace is that I don't deserve it. Why would a good God do that? You see, we are not the damsel in distress, we are not the damsel in distress that God needs to come and help and save. We are the terrorists. We are the terrorist who is attacking and assaulting the kingdom of God. We are the terrorist who is trying to overthrow our king with our actions and with our pride and with our sinfulness and selfishness. We are the terrorist who is attacking our God and our king. And our king then goes and takes his only son. And while we are still terrorists, lays his life down for us. Why would God do that? That's the question we should wrestle with. Why would a perfect king, while I'm a terrorist against him, take his son and have him slaughtered so that I might be accepted into his kingdom of grace? Why would God do that? That should lead us to understand and feel a weight of God's sacrifice. We shouldn't hear the gospel of reconciliation of Jesus Christ and not be moved and not think, well, I... I was kind of the damsel and he's a good god and he saved me. No, I'm the terrorist. You are the terrorist. The wrath of God is what you deserve. I love you. Remember last week Truth and Grace? The truth is, you deserve hell. I love you enough to tell you that. But if you've experienced the grace of God, if you've put your faith in Christ, you don't get it. You get the, you get Christ. You get righteousness. That's the gospel. And should move us, and we should, we should celebrate with righteousness, and we should celebrate with, with everything we have, and our lives should be in response to that. That is the core sacrifice that to not understand, and to not understand deeply, will limit how we can love other people. And if we don't understand that deeply, and if we, if we don't see and appreciate and receive then we will never be able to love other people or receive love the way we're called to. Three questions we're going to ask. Do we see it? Do we see the gospel? Do we receive it and do we respond to it? Do we see it? Um, Let me read you a story. Matthew 18. It'll be up on the screen for you too. Matthew 18. Jesus tells this uh, this story to his people. Therefore, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servant. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's a lot of money. And since he could not pay his ma- uh, since he could not pay, his master offered him to be sold with his wife and children and all they had and payment to be made. So the servant, which is what he deserves, it was a debt owed, and he's got to cash it in. The king's going to cash it in. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And this is big, man. Verse 27, I love this. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave his debt. 10,000 talents was huge. I read this whole nerdy article from some professor at Biola University who talked about how much money the equivalent of 10,000 talents was, and it was like $7 billion or something like that. His debt is forgiven completely. This king looks at him and for some reason shows grace and mercy and says, man, your debt is finished. That is a big deal. You have no more debt. The story goes on, verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii, much less significant amount of money. Much less significant amount of money. And seized him. He began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Sounds familiar, right? Sounds familiar. Verse 30. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Man. Look how the story ends. When his fellow servant saw what had taken place, Do we see the grace and love that God has offered us? Do you see it? Do you see the depth of his sacrifice? Do we see the debt? Do we realize how far we were from him and how holy and righteous he is? Do we see that? Or or are we people who just forget And James 2.19 says, you believe that God is the one that's great. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So even just acknowledging, yeah, yeah, okay, sure, I believe that God did that. Well, demons believe that God is who he is. But do we really see what God has done for us? Or does it just become white noise in our life? Does the gospel just become white noise in our life? So the second question is, do we receive it? Has your belief in that God through Christ Jesus turned into a surrender to Christ Jesus. Paul, one of my favorite verses, because it just so unpacks what it looks like for a man to be surrendered to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul, in this book of Galatians, in chapter two, verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Paul says, man, I have been crucified. I hung on that Christ with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives within me. And now... The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul articulates so perfectly in that verse what it looks like to be a man whose faith is in the cross of Christ in a way that has surrendered his life. Man, I am crucified with Christ and my life is now, I have been set free and now I'm no longer a slave to sin, but I'm a slave to righteousness, Paul says. And it's this beautiful, beautiful exchange that we get. And his life is no longer his own. He didn't check a box, pray a prayer, now he's in, he's going to go on doing his life. No, his life is no longer his own. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Has that happened in your life? Are you a new creation? All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And then verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Has the gospel of Jesus Christ, this sacrifice that reconciles you, Has it moved you from something you understand and see to something you surrender your life to? Has it moved you from something that, yeah, okay, I I get it, I see it, I'm starting to wrap my head around it, to something that you surrender your life to, that you are a new creation, that your life is no longer your own, that you have been reconciled? Last question, do we respond to it? This love, without a doubt, demands a response. Uh, the love that Christ has for us, the love that God shows for us, to us, on the cross, demands a response. Um, the, the cross demands action. Um, so I want us to look back in 2 Corinthians 5, and, and we're going to slide up a little bit uh, from what we just read in verses 17 to 19. And we're going to look at the verses before that, starting in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, this is important, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So after this exchange happens between uh, us us and the Lord, and after Jesus gets our sin and we get Jesus' righteousness, we no longer get to live for ourselves. That's no longer ours to live. We've been bought at this beautiful, beautiful price. And then we see what the specifics of our love is supposed to look like. So let me give you you three more verses. John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. Greater love has no one than this, and someone lays down his life for his friends. So we're starting to get specific and seeing what this sacrifice of love, how that should start to shape our view of how we love other people. 1 John 3, 16, By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We see a theme here. We see a theme where God is calling us to himself, we're surrendering to him, and now he is calling for a response. He's now calling for action. So we see it, we receive it, and then there should be an action, and this action has this theme of us laying down our lives for our brothers. One more verse, 1 Peter two twenty one. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. What should your response to Christ's love look like? So we see it, we receive it. What does it look like to respond to it? The New Testament, the Bible is really clear. It looks like our shape of love should be laying down our life for other people. That's what we're called to do. This shape of love should have sacrifice attached to it. We should be able to see and receive the sacrifice of God if we really want to understand love and be able to love others. But also our shape of love towards the world around us, how we love, how we receive love, we should be laying down our life for others. That's what love looks like. Now, we live in a culture where our blood is not spilled in America because of our faith. Right, our, our blood, We're not persecuted, we're not martyred right now because of our faith and because of our faith in Christ. Um, now, some people might be called to other countries where that's not the case, but right now, that's not where you live. That's not where God has called you and put you to be people who still, right now, are called to lay down your life for others. So what's that look like? Um, that's a huge question. Um, and, and one thing I want to talk about is that you are going to project right now. You're going to project what your heart beats fast for, that's what it looks like. So if you... If you have a heart for international missions, for example, and you just love missions, then as you hear this, you're going to see that and say, I need to lay down my life for international missions. And you would be correct in that. And then also, if you have a heart for the city of Fort Worth. Man, we need to lay our life down for the, the people in the city and the marginalized in the city. You would be correct. And if you look at it and you say, man, I just have a heart for the the, the body of Christ and us laying down our lives as these verses are talking about Christian brother to Christian brother, laying down our lives for the brother. We need we need to do that. We need to we need to really lay down our lives in that way and you would be correct, right? In a in a romantic context. You know, if, if you enter into a covenant of marriage with someone else or you're in an engagement or you're pursuing towards that end, it's, man, I'm willing to lay down my life and serve sacrificially, selflessly this person. You're going to see through that lens. And all of those are appropriate applications that you're going to just start applying. And I can, I can take some shots at some, but, but you're going to start applying that. But what I want to challenge you to is don't be narrow to just one. Because maybe you have a heart for the local church, but not the marginalized in the city. And that would be incomplete. Or maybe you have a heart for local or international missions, which is great, go, but also don't neglect opportunities that you have to love the brethren and all of those things. Uh, so, what does it look like? It looks like ultimate selflessness. What it looks like to love with that kind of a shape of love, biblical love, it looks like ultimate selflessness. It looks like, man, um, I mean, it looks like building your schedule not around you. It looks like when you sit down and plan your week or plan your month or plan your day, it looks like you're you're starting to build your schedule not around you, your life being your own, but instead building your schedule and finding places in your schedule to say, man, how can I lay down my life in the context I live in now, in the job I have now, in the relationships in the community I have now? It looks like building your schedule with you not at the center of it but instead the center of you being obedient to laying down your life. Where can I be selfless to people? How can I create margin in my day, in my week, in my month to serve and be obedient to what Scripture calls me to be? It looks like like building your budget, not around you. It looks like looking at all of your income, whether that's $10 or $50, somewhere in between that range. I'm not sure what your income is. It looks like taking that and saying, this is not mine, how can I, how can I give, how can I share, how can I, how can I be wise and a good steward and not foolish, but building these things not around you, but instead around the call that we are called to lay down our lives, lay down our time, lay down our resources, um, and that's, it's going to bring rejection, right? Right? Laying down your life, being radical, loving people in a radical way, it's going to bring rejection. It's going to bring hard things. Hard things are going to happen in your life. You're going to have conversations that you don't want to have, but because you're called to lay down your life, you fight through awkwardness and say, I'm going I'm to love this person with truth and grace, and that, that could be awkward, and that, that could be sticky, and what, what, they might reject me, and they might push me away, and they might not like me after this, and, but I'm going to be obedient to that, and I'm going to really try to love them well and speak into their life, and and continue to speak into their life, continue to walk alongside them. And, um, and that's hard. And when hard things happen, here's what it looks like. When hard things, not if, when hard things happen in your life, and you go through tough stuff in your life, it looks like worship. This shape of love looks like looking at the hard things in our life and the, the suffering in our life that sometimes God allows to happen and looking at those things and saying, This is hard, and we don't just fake happy faces, but we raise our hands in worship and say, man, praise God that I was considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Praise God that I was taken through something that the Lord says can refine and chisel and and build character, and and then the world around us sees you as someone who has laid down your life because you're, you're going through hard things, but your hands are still pointing to God being good. And you still point to making much of God because you understand what sacrifice is and the sacrifice that has been given and the hard things that our Savior has done and the debt that has been forgiven. What holds us back from that? Man, what holds us back from that is I think I, I can certainly speak to my own sinful heart. I think I'm entitled. What holds me back from laying down my life for other people is um, this truth and this idea that I'm, I'm entitled to my comfort and my resources and my time and uh, my relaxation. And not, that, not to be disobedient to say, well, there's no category for rest. There's no category for abiding in him and creating healthy boundaries to make sure that you are healthy. But man, when, our, when our life is poured out, I think that really clashes with my entitlement. Nah, this life should revolve around me and my comfort and my status and my kingdom as opposed to his kingdom come. The true shape of love, it should smell like sacrifice. Ephesians 5.2 says, and walk in love. Walk in love. Do this. Respond to this. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's how we're supposed to walk, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Man, for the world around us to see how amazing for the world around us to see. We do not have the ability to fake that kind of love. I mean, we do for a little bit. Like, we've got some good people in this room, and I'm, I've learned how to be a nice guy, I work at a church, so like I know how to put on the nice guy hat, to be kind to people, all those things. But that has to come from a, receiving love from God in order for me to pour out my life for others. The fact that Jesus' life was poured out has to be what drives me. To be able to respond, I can't just fake it. It'll only last for so long, and then I'll get weary and tired of it. And even as you look at these things and you hear and you picture, yeah, that's what love looks like. That's what sacrificial love looks like. Man, people that are really just laying down their lives for the brother and and laying down their lives for the lost and serving. And that's what sacrificial love looks like. Man, I sure hope so-and-so hears this sermon. Right? I do that. Man, I hope this person hears it. Man, I'm gonna make sure that I like tag them on Facebook whenever we post it tomorrow, and I'm gonna make sure they listen to this because they need that. But do you see what, what's happening in my sinful heart when I do that? What I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, I I love Josh, man. I love him and I'm serving, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna take the short end of the stick and I'm gonna love him with sacrificial love. But wait, he's not reciprocating. Well, that's messed up. Well, then 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 I'm upset and frustrated and angry at Josh. Well, that reveals in me. That reveals in me my selfishness, that my love was actually just to receive something back. And it reveals in me, well, hang on. This wasn't actual love. I, would just, I just was the first person to do the nice action, but he didn't reciprocate fast enough, and so now, now I'm kind of done with it. I have to be plugged into the source of the perfect love of God through Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit indwelling in me, in order for us to love like this. You have to be plugged into the source, with the Holy Spirit indwelling you to be able to love the way you're called to love. Otherwise, we'll just get bitter and frustrated and move on. Do you see what he's already done? Do you see what he's done on the cross? Do you see what he did? Are you still walking in fear and shame and guilt? Are you still carrying around this guilt and shame, feeling I'm not, I'm not good enough and I'm not worthy Do you see what he did? Do you see that it's powerful enough for whatever sin you bring to the altar? Whatever your baggage and background and sin, whatever you did an hour ago, right? Whatever sin you're stuck in and all of your unrighteousness, do you see that the cross is big enough for that? The power of God, the wrath poured out on Jesus is big enough for that. Do you receive it or is this just another night where you hear but don't listen? Don't truly have ears to really hear And then are you responding? Man, if this is true, and and if you replied yes to the the first two questions, yes, I I see the gospel. I see it, and it's a a good thing. It's a great thing. It's the best thing. And yes, I have received the gospel. Yes. Then are you responding by giving your life away? In whatever those contexts look like for you, are you responding by giving your life away? Because if you're not, if the answer to the third question is, ah, I don't know if I'm really giving my life away, then I would argue we don't really understand and have properly and fully at least received his grace. I I don't really understand the sacrifice that's given. Then I'm the ruler, I'm the the slave who gets forgiven a huge debt, walks away and doesn't realize how that affects how I love everyone else and forgive everyone else. Um, Man, this challenge applies to everyone in this room too. To the person who put their faith in Christ when they were five years old and and it was genuine and real and, and true. And in that childlike faith, you surrendered your life. And every year since five, you have grown in maturity. Now, every year without hiccup in your entire life, you've grown in maturity. And now you're sitting here and you're 30 years old and you, and you truly love Jesus in a mature way. Great. But we should still be challenged and convicted in deeper ways when we ask ourselves the question, how are we responding to this? We should never grow tired of sitting and doing business with the Lord and saying, I hear the gospel, but how am I responding? How can I respond deeper, Lord? What are other ways that I need to respond to your love in ways that I can be selfless and sacrificial and shape love for the world around me because it has been shaped by your sacrifice in my life? What does that look like, Lord? Show me deeper and deeper and deeper ways. That is God's challenge to the deepest part of the deepest believer. And to not respond is to not get it. And the depth The depth at which we respond to to others with this loving sacrifice, it reveals the depth at which we really have received this. And we can't love others without it. The depth at which we have experienced the love of God will be the ceiling for how we love others. So if our depth of the gospel is, yeah, it was great, well then the ceiling for our ability to love and be obedient to what Christ calls us to do we'll hit a pretty shallow ceiling if we don't dig that depth deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, You want to know how to love others? Understand how you are loved. You want to understand and know, how do I love other people? How do I step into this? How do I love, in all contexts, in every context, how do we love others? We understand how we are loved. And brothers and sisters, let me end with this. You are loved. Okay? I know those are just my words right now, and what I'm begging to happen is that the Holy Spirit right now affirms the truth of this scripture. You are loved. Brothers and sisters, you are loved, and the the gift, the cost, the cost that was given for us was so great. Our Savior hanging on on a tree, you are loved. Let's stare at that. Let's fall in love with that. Let's never turn that into white noise that we hear or are supposed to tag on to a sermon or a benediction. Let's always look at the gospel and say that has to shape love for us. How Jesus has loved us is amazing. Sisters, you have not gone too far. You are not ruined. You have a heavenly Father who says, You are mine, you are beautiful, and I am, I am making you a new creation. Brothers, you have not ruined yourself. Your lack of religion or your lack of Biblical knowledge or your sin or your past or your self righteousness, your wicked, wicked self righteousness, is not enough to disqualify you from the God of the universe saying, You are my boy. I'm giving you the righteousness of Christ if you surrender to Him. You are loved. Let me pray over you. Father, we need this from you, Lord. Um, We see over and over and over again, dozens of verses even tonight. and thousands more in this this book we say we believe, Lord, cry to this truth. Point and profess to this truth that you love us so well, so perfectly, that for your glory and for some crazy reason, your love for us, you laid down your only begotten son. Father, tonight, would we see it more clearly? God, would we be able to receive it would we be able to receive it in a way that um, doesn't just become white noise in our life? And then tonight, Lord, would your Holy Spirit take the love, the kindness that you have given us and would that lead us to repentance? And would that lead us to more obedience? And would that lead us to laying down our life and walking out of these things that we are still, even as your kids, still terrorizing your kingdom as? God, would that love and kindness cause us to repent and change and look more like you and with that love that you show us be the fuel and the catalyst and the only source for our love to the world around us? Thank you, Father. Thank you, thank you, thank you. In the name of Jesus, amen.